Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investment, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. And we have diversity of farmers and practices. So we have the smallest of the small to very, very large. And we have diversity of microclimates here. If we can prove out the practices that work, the technology that works, and that it can be practically applied for small-scale farmers as well as large, we will have solutions to offer to global food production. Agriculture is a sector that needs to be transformed. We need to cut emissions, improve soil health, sequester carbon, all while feeding more people. This episode focuses on how California's Department of Food and Agriculture is investing in this change. Why California? Well, agriculture in California is a big deal. It's a $51 billion a year industry that grows over a third of the United States' vegetables and three quarters of the country's fruits and nuts. California is recognized as a leader when it comes to climate action, and there's much to learn from its agriculture policy and practices. So I was delighted to sit down with California's Secretary of Agriculture, Karen Ross. Secretary Ross has decades of experience in agriculture and ag policy and is deeply committed to climate action. We talked about everything from dairy digesters to regenerative ag practices to the role California ag innovation plays nationally and globally, and much more. If you're interested in how the food system is changing to address climate change, there's a lot here for you. Here we go. Hello, Secretary Ross. Welcome to Invested in Climate, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to meet you. Well, Secretary Ross, we need to start just by talking about the weather. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been here for about 15 years, and I've never seen a winter like this. Last week, it snowed here. It snowed in Los Angeles, and we've seen more precipitation this winter than in years. How has this crazy weather been affecting farmers across the state? Well, of course, farming is very local and very specific to geography, so it's affected farmers differently. But there have been several things here. First, we went from the worst drought in our history and a harvest that was impacted by 10 days of the highest temperatures we'd ever had as far as extreme heat and recorded history. And then we come into a winter where we're hoping we would get precipitation. And then it started coming and kept coming. And then over the holidays, it came in flash floods almost, which really had impacts, especially on the coastal areas, Santa Maria Valley, for example, the closer you were to the coast, lots of water just like burying those crops. And so they might lose the whole season of those crops. 
There were spots like that up in the more central coast Monterey area affecting the berry crop and people are deciding, do they go back in and try to replant or not? In the Central Valley, we had flooding, but not to that extreme. But then we've had a recent frost that was right at the time of the beautiful bloom of all those beautiful almond trees, have not yet heard about impacted tree fruit. So we know there's going to be substantial crop loss already, and we still have some winter to go, right? Right. Thank you. I know that talking about the weather is kind of a mundane way to start a conversation, but clearly very impactful and perhaps reflective of changing times, changing climate, and things that both the farmers themselves, as well as you as an agricultural leader, are thinking a lot about. Let's dive in and learn more about the role that you're playing today. You are the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of California. Please tell us a bit about your background, what you were doing previously that helped prepare you for this important position, and now, what is it that you do every day? Well, I'll start at the beginning. This is a position I didn't even know existed. So it's difficult to aspire to something you've never been exposed to. And I remind people that's important to be in front of young people to show them the world of possibilities. But I did grow up on a farm. It was in western Nebraska, almost on the Wyoming border. I can see Wyoming from the farm. And I own part of that farm that my brother farms. But I fell in love with the ag policy. I worked for a United States senator while I went to night school to get my college degree. and just fell in love and understood how impactful policy can be for good or for more, as some would say, onerous paperwork regulations, but really came to just love being in that field, being able to communicate with lots of different people, hear those perspectives. I came to California when my husband got the job of his dreams, not knowing there was really agriculture here. I know it's embarrassing, but I have to be truthful about that. It's so different. It's so bountiful. It's so diverse. It's so innovative. I mean, everything about what we grow in the state is like, wow. And so I was fortunate after quite a bit of job searching to represent farmer-owned cooperatives, then became president of the California Association of Wine Grape Growers. Yes, truly one of the best jobs in the state of California. And I was there for about 14 and a half years and then was asked to be chief of staff to Secretary Vilsack in the first term of the Obama administration. And so we moved there thinking we'd be there for at least seven years And a year later, Jerry Brown won the governor's race and invited me to become Secretary of Agriculture. And this is where I've been since 2011. Sorry, long winding road. Perfect. Well, I think as you said, a great example for young people. You never know where you're going to go, but it's great to have the exposure early on and uh, to believe in all sorts of possibilities. So, Secretary Ross, as being reappointed now by Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, a governor who has really pursued a climate agenda that's quite ambitious. And now, even during a time of heightened climate commitment nationally and internationally, California remains a leader in climate action, pursuing bolder change and helping show other parts of the country and world what's possible. So we're here today to understand how our agricultural investments and policies are part of that climate leadership. And I guess first off, is my characterization of California as a climate leader, is that accurate? And How bold is our agricultural agenda and what are its main priorities? Is California a global leader? Absolutely. There's numerous ways. And first, it does start with policy. It's very interesting. The first climate-related bill was signed by Gray Davis. The most significant climate bill was signed by Governor Schwarzenegger, and that was the one that established the cap-and-trade system. I call that out because deciding to go with a more market approach to all of this is what has generated 
literally billions and billions of dollars that's being reinvested in the transition to carbon neutrality. And certainly the agricultural sector has been a participant in that as far as over the last decade, there's been with the programs for Climate Smart Ag that we have here at the department, programs at CARB, the Air Resources Board, and at the Energy Commission, nearly a billion dollars that's been invested as incentive grants and technical assistance to be able to support the transition, to be able to adapt to climate change. And most importantly, and this has been the exciting part, is the ability to prove out that concept that forestry and agriculture can draw down carbon, store it in the soils, which will ensure our productivity for generations to come, increase our water holding capacity, improve nitrogen cycling. There's so many multiple benefits to that. Plus a third of our biodiversity is right there underneath our feet. So it's hugely important what we're doing. And the momentum just grows every year. All of our programs are oversubscribed. Wow. Well, tell us a bit about what are some of those top programs and the things that you think most about? Well, the first one was ironically created in the drought of 2014. And it was the first time that we connected conservation practices to reducing greenhouse gas emissions through irrigation pumping. And so we created the on-farm water use efficiency, which is SWEEP, which stands for Statewide Water Efficiency Enhancement Program. And what it does is makes that direct connection by reducing energy use, you're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's how we measure. Those are the metrics that we measure, but you're also saving water and improving your fertilizer efficiency. It has been our oldest program. We've invested over $200 million in incentive grants. We target priority populations in disadvantaged communities and historically underserved and very small farms. We want to make sure that every farmer knows about these programs and has access to them. We have community educators in multiple languages to make sure that what we're doing keeps equity at the center of that. We've had significant water savings and greenhouse gas emission reductions with that program. Our next program was established when this state passed what I know of so far is the only mandate and statute to reduce methane emissions. And as you know, Jason, methane is a short-lived climate pollutant. It's a very powerful one. And this uh, set a target for our reductions of methane emissions from livestock. And we have two-pronged program for that. One is dairy digesters that will capture that methane and turn it into renewable energy, either for electricity generation or low carbon fuel standards. The next chapter of this will be hydrogen as another low intensity fuel, as a transition fuel. And then alternative manure management practices, which is really circular economy. It's taking those nutrients and converting it to compost and other useful products. We've been very successful. The dairy farmers have really leaned into that. And the newest program for us is only four years old, and that's our Healthy Soils program, which has a whole menu of practices from compost, mulching, no-till, hedgerows, even some of our pollinator habitat will qualify because it's drawing down carbon and storing carbon in our soils. Those are just a few examples. Thank you for that overview. There are several programs that you just mentioned that we'll want to circle back to, but let's start with dairy. We recently recorded an episode with Dan Owen and the Environmental Defense Fund, and I understand the importance of reducing methane emissions from dairy farms. But the Dairy Digester R&D program focuses on something a bit different, on actually utilizing methane 
as a renewable fuel source. So tell us a bit more about the program's goals and, and really how the program works. So it's incentive grants, which are just a small fraction of what the total cost of putting these operations into play is, um, but it has been enough to attract significant investment. In the beginning, there were only one or two developers for this, but we have more. You know, we've proven that this is this is a good place for investment. For, that's why you've got to get the right policy signals to the market, right? Yep. And people are looking for the certainty that this is going to be a place for investment. The farmer is taking care of cows. So the developer, that's become the model here. The developer is actually operating it. There's, there's a payment to the farmer and they're generating low carbon fuel standard, carbon offsets, taking a look at all of those types of things. In the beginning, it was really about generating the energy to offset energy use on the dairy itself. And then with some of the changes at the Public Utilities Commission, a certain amount is, is available to go onto the grid, which is becoming more important as we think about electrifying everything. But at the same time, as we electrify more of our equipment, we're going to need more of that on our own farm as a microgrid itself. One of the newest partnerships was at a dairy where I cut the ribbon before I went to the COP26 in Glasgow two years ago. And that was a new partnership with BMW and Bloom Energy on storage and having more storage and being able to, that's going to be the next chapter of going into hydrogen. I'm not an engineer. I can't get into details, but that's the kind of innovation that's coming into this space, really thinking about all of these resources that in the past was a cost to get rid of as a waste stream. And now how do we capture every useful molecule of that, including new technology that I'm anxious to learn more about, and we might pilot this year, that'll actually clean up the water for ability to reuse that water on the farms without enhancing any of the nitrate issues. There's a lot of innovation in the space. That's what I want to say to you. And it's really, really exciting. Great. And what about the methane emissions from the famous cow belches? Yes. Doesn't much of the climate impact of raising cattle stem from cows burps? And are there ways that California is working not just to utilize the methane and manure, but also reduce the methane emitted? That's enteric fermentation. It is a natural process for livestock. And it is significant. The best way is to identify the right feeds or feed additives. Over time, probably, you know, just part of breeding of the genetics will also be a contributor to this. But the most immediate focus right now is on feed additives. And in fact, there are several products before the Food and Drug Administration. Any animal feed has to be registered and certified as safe, especially when you're talking about additives. And the first determination that FDA made at the end of 2022 is that they would have to treat this not as a feed supplement, but taking a look at any pharmaceutical activity because they have to ensure that it doesn't impact the health of the cow or in any way is carried through to the end product itself. So they put themselves on a fast track, but we're still at least a year probably away from any registered product, but there's a lot of trial works that are happening right now. One of them is with a seaweed as an additive and it's being treated as an additive. It cannot make a claim at this time for enteric fermentation reductions, but that's the kind of experimentation that's going on and really innovative dairy farmers that are willing to partner with researchers and cooperative extension to collect the data because all of that data is going to be necessary for registration at the federal level. But our department's working very closely with FDA with the collection of data that we have here in California. 
That's great. And we actually did an earlier episode with uh, Symbrosia, a startup focused on adding seaweed to yes. livestock feed. So great opportunity. Will it be enough? Is it also needed to reduce the consumption of animal protein really to meet the methane goals? First of all, there's a difference in emissions from cows that are out in the open range or pasture as opposed to in more concentrated areas. And so I think that by focusing on where we have our largest sector in the dairy and it is more heavily populated, that will be an important place to start to show reductions. But I think when we think about climate, it's not going to be one thing. It's going to be a menu of items. And so I think collectively, the work that we're doing in the livestock sector and the work that's necessary in landfills and diverting organic waste from landfills and finding useful repurposing of that, i.e. compost would be one of those. I think it's just necessary to ramp all of these up concurrently and not put, excuse me, the farm saying is not put all of our eggs in one basket. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's the same we use all the time and we should recognize it comes from the farm. Secretary Ross, the Biden administration has taken action on methane through the Methane Emissions Reduction Plan, but many have criticized it for ignoring methane emissions from animal agriculture, focusing instead on methane from the oil and gas sectors and from landfills, as you just mentioned. Is that a fair critique? And what do you think drove the exclusion of agriculture from that plan? Well, I'm not sitting in Washington, D.C., so I'm not going to speculate too much, but I think every decision has policy implications You have to consider the economic implications and potential disruptions, and you cannot ignore the political implications. And I think that just as we did with cap and trade, with the initial highest emission sectors, which are oil and gas and energy, utilities and concrete production, we always have to prioritize where the largest emissions are and where there seems to be the most potential with feasible alternatives to be able to focus on that and then work our way through the rest of the system while we develop the technologies and the methodologies for reductions. So I believe the Biden administration started in a place that they know in our transportation grid, we have to do something about that. And this is where they've chosen and, and based on data, they believe is the right priority that doesn't exclude work down the road. But I think they've decided to use this as their priority focus. Before we move on from dairy, are there any other success stories or signs of progress that you'd like to highlight? Well, I think generally speaking, the uptake of all of our programs shows the interest of farmers. We also know that we're only able to measure those farms that have enrolled in some of our programs with these incentive grants. And so our focus has been on investing equally in technical assistance with memorandums of understanding and contracts with Cooperative Extension, California Resource Conservation Districts, our partners at the federal level with Natural Resource Conservation Service. We want to get these practices to become the standard practices, not the best practices, and having that knowledge far-flung in every corner of the state so every farmer has access to it, I think is a way for us to ensure these practices will continue and expand beyond the time when we have incentive dollars to get those early adopters in. And that's an age old way of creating behavior change. You've got 25% that are going to try it first, 50% that are going to learn about it. I say looking over the fence and over time, you've got the critical mass that are using these practices. So my goal is Jason, every farmer, at least one practice on every acre in California. I think that's a modest goal. Don't you? 
Uh, that's a great goal. <laughs> How are we tracking? And what would you say is the biggest barrier to accomplishing that goal? Farmers have to manage so much volatility, whether it's volatility in the markets, especially volatility in the weather, which is only increasing. And then, of course, after the last two years of a pandemic, the kind of disruptions in supply chain and high costs. And so any change that you aren't familiar with it has to be identified. Is there a risk in doing this? And I think our incentive dollars are one way of de-risking making this transition. And we get testimonials. I have one that I'm using in my testimony today before the, the Assembly Budget Committee. Amy from Meridian Farms, who they use an incentive grant to do compost application and hedgerows. And it proved to be so helpful, they're now doing it on many more acres on their on their ground. And that's what we want to do with incentive grants. But by having technical assistance, we're embedding this knowledge and this transition and doing demonstration projects to show everyone the business case that can be made in making this transition. So uh-huh. I think the risk is just something that everybody has to look at, especially when margins are getting squeezed. Let's move on and talk about the Healthy Soils Program. We also covered soil health in a recent episode with BioDell Ag, a company that with a soil amendment or additive that aims to restore soil health and increase soil's ability to sequester carbon. What is the state aiming to address through its Healthy Soils Program? Well, obviously, we want to increase building of that soil organic matter in our soils and just holding carbon. You know, I'd like to think of our farms and our natural working lands as the carbon sinks. And and obviously, with our adoption of the Natural Working Lands Climate Smart Land Strategy over a year ago, and embedding that as one of our strategies in the updated scoping plan that was adopted by the Air Board in December, we have had a pillar to acknowledge that we need natural working lands as part of our overall strategy for climate. But it wasn't until 2022, after a lot of work, and some uncertainty in the data that we've actually are setting goals. What we want to do is see an additional 80,000 acres a year over the next decade on the way to 2045 of having some sort of healthy soils practice, 40,000 acres a year, new acres with compost applications, about 19,000 acres a year with cover crops, 19,000 acres a year of no-till. These are additive year on year on year. We want to expand our adoption of organic practices, which have a very strong component. They're built on healthy soils. And then to continue our good work with the Sustainable Agland Conservation Program, when we can conserve prime farmland for food productivity and avoid conversions that intensify traffic, development, higher carbon emissions, we are actually helping to create an additional carbon sink. That's just on the working lands. And then we have very aggressive goals for forestry and other natural working lands to be able to enhance biodiversity and store carbon in those soils. For the working lands, how is the program going? Changing behavior of any sort can be challenging. You mentioned all of the risks and variables that farmers need to think about. And regenerative practices might require a lot of patience, education, and really well-aligned incentives. So I'm curious, How many farms are you aiming to reach with those 80,000 acres per year? And how many are getting involved currently? So our 80,000 acres a year can come in any way. We do with our incentive dollars, we are very focused on making sure that we prioritize small, mid-sized and historically underserved farmers to make sure that they have an opportunity to know about the programs and we provide technical support to apply for these programs. But 80,000 acres can come from 
any size farm. We just want to make sure that we're doing all that we can to reach farmers, whether they're funding it themselves or the state is providing incentive dollars or they're drawing down dollars from the Natural Resource Conservation Service to adopt these practices. So I see this is where we're going to need a lot more satellite imagery and really thinking about the technology, because one of the things we know about farmland in particular is working land. There's so many variables in a season. And there are certain times of the year you're not sure, is that a crop that's planted or is that a cover crop that's planted? So there's a lot of opportunities to use technology to do verification. Jason, it's also to point out that Secretary Vilsack late last year announced $3 billion in grants through the USDA Commodity Climate Smart Partnership Program. He is focusing that program on scaling up the adoption of practices, but really looking at how do we monitor and verify? How do we all get on the same measuring stick of reporting this so that we don't have different companies when they're reporting their scope three, measuring something in a different way? We're trying to get as standardized a measurement system in place as possible. And I think the data that he's asking for and applying those grants is going to be hugely important to this entire movement. Well, you bring up a really great question, which is really around the interconnection between California and the other states and the federal government. Uh, and so I'm really curious, what are some of the ways that the state of California and the federal government's climate initiatives influence one another? For instance, will the Inflation Reduction Act or other federal climate investments translate into new opportunities for agriculture in California? And are there ways that California's climate efforts are influencing national policy? That's a great question. Well, I want to start with how we built our Climate Smart Ag programs. We actually used work that was done during the Obama administration, the building blocks for Climate Smart Agriculture. Those building blocks are about soil health, fertilizer management, water use efficiency, methane reduction. Those were the building blocks that Secretary Vilsack used to create the U.S. Climate Smart Ag Alliance as well as a global Climate Smart Ag Alliance. So we have some established data that inform those building blocks. We wanted to align our programs as closely as we could to standard practices of USDA so that when we knew that someday the federal government would have dollars flowing into these types of programs, and now we are starting to see that happen, we use some of our initial grant dollars to actually retain the company that did all the modeling for the NRCS work to be able to add our crops, to be able to show farmers a calculator of how do you calculate your greenhouse gas emission reductions. And now they're, they're building that into all of the NRCS practices. So we informed that. And they watched how rapidly we were able to scale our programs up. And Undersecretary Bonnie said, we want to have more people doing what California has done. We're very fortunate. We had capital to invest in this. The cap and trade program has allowed that. Our recent years of above budgeted revenues has really given us one-time funds to invest in this. We can't do it without that kind of investment as well as technical assistance. So now that our revenues as a state are going down and we may have to slow down some of our programs, we are seeing there was $20 billion for conservation programs to USDA and the IRA program. And they want to align that so that those investments are also making progress on climate change. So it's a bit symbiotic relationship. And we also heard yesterday from the Department of Energy, huge opportunities with the dollars flowing through the Department of Energy to really help all of us focus on some new energy technologies. 
Fantastic. And what about other states? We've talked a lot about California's leadership, but surely there are other states doing great work and that are making progress. Are there initiatives in other states that you admire or are learning from? Obviously, there's been a lot of work over the years with the Chesapeake Bay states, six of those states. And so they've been in the water quality and actually have been part with some of the conservation groups of trying to establish like a nitrogen trading program as they do their work to reduce nitrogen fertilizer use and runoff issues. That just shows a collective six states working together with standard practices and sharing resources for technical assistance. Minnesota has done some really remarkable work in water quality is what they've really focused on because those states have a lot of water. It's a lot of surface water, so they really have to be careful about the runoff. Iowa has done remarkable work on getting cover crops on many thousands of acres with corn growers as partners at that effort. Again, those programs started because of their concerns about water quality issues. But those are programs that are also with cover crops, storing carbon, improving air quality at the same time. So those are a few examples. My friends in Colorado have a number of new programs where they use some of their COVID relief dollars and invested in healthy, resilient food systems, both with a healthy soils program and some of the other elements of, of a resilient food system. And Washington State, I forgot Washington State, they have a really innovative soil health program in partnership with uh, Washington State University. It's a really great model to take a look at. Great. Secretary Ross, you brought up the role of technology a couple of times. And so I'm curious, what does the state's interaction with the investor community look like? And particularly thinking about, oh, a boom in ag tech investing. Are there particular spaces within ag tech where you see either a lot of opportunity or just not enough activity yet in a place for innovators and investors to start dialing up their attention? Yeah, well, ag tech, going back to the drought and the water issues, there was there was an initial rush of new VC coming to, to agriculture for those types of things. And in that process, we were all inundated, whether you were a trade association like Western Growers that represents all the fresh produce sector or the department itself, we simply couldn't field all of the calls with people who said, look what I've got, that got this great idea, or I've got this great potential solution. And so we really rely on cooperative extension. Our first question is, have you partnered and done any trial work with cooperative extension? Because that's like real-time feedback loop that is demonstrating with farmers for them to see for themselves how it's working. But I will call out two trade associations that have really focused on this in a significant way. Western Growers established the Western Growers Innovation Center in Salinas. And the goal of their work there, being in such close proximity to Silicon Valley, was to bring the Salinas Valley and the Silicon Valley and now the Central Valley closer together up front in the investigation of new technologies and the understanding, you've got this great idea, here's the practical application of it, whether it's in a packing house, lettuce processing plant, or in the field. And so they run literally contests for who's going to be populating that innovation center. And those people are bringing their equipment, their technology, they're out in the field with growers and processors on a daily basis. And that's really helped stimulate a lot of new venture capital in this space. They put on seminars. They originally were doing them with Forbes. The big one that's coming to Salinas in June is the Biological Summit. This is going to be an international summit on biological solutions to pest management and how do we continue our reduction of the most toxic pesticides. Um, they've got an exciting initiative 
also an international initiative with other specialty crop producing states and countries for automation, the global automation. And they have fascinating reports. They do a progress report each year that will show you they've mapped out where the technology is, who should we be partnering with, where can we do some trial works. I mean, we've got robotic arms that are picking plums and nectarines and gently putting them into the box. A lot of trial work going on, huge amount of work going on with apples in Washington state. Netherlands, New Zealand, Israel, Chile, Australia are all significant partners in this work, along with Washington State. They're doing that kind of work, as is the Almond Board of California. They have a science officer who engages with venture capital, where it is, where the new technologies are on a global basis, and then working with their almond growers to be partners and doing trial work on that. Those are two of our most successful examples. In addition to Cooperative Extension, Gabe Yancey is the head of innovation and creating partnerships with venture capital and some of the regional hubs on innovation and technology for ag. Amazing. Uh, really highlights the role of, of California, not just in ag policy, but in really supporting innovation and being connected to the innovation community. Well, we've spoken about several different programs from the California Department for Agriculture that help address climate change. And Really, we've only scratched the surface. Your department oversees programs related to pesticides, alternative manure management, biodiversity, sustainable cannabis cultivation, and much, much more. From the lens of climate change, is there anything else that you'd really like to highlight? I think the importance of what we're doing here, A, we have the most innovative farmers and we grow these specialty crops that are so unique for nutrition and quality of life. If, especially if we can establish those eating habits at an early age. And we have diversity of farmers and practices. So we have the smallest of the small to very, very large. And we have diversity of microclimates here. If we can prove out the practices that work, the technology that works, and that it can be practically applied for small-scale farmers as well as large, we will have solutions to offer to global food production. As you know, the vast majority of farmers across the globe are small-scale landholders, less than 10 hectares. Many of them are women, and today is the International Day of Women, so I want to call that out. And they're looking for solutions to be able to just have subsistence and reduce hunger and poverty by having successful farming models. So I think of us as a living laboratory. We've got the farmers. We've got the best educational institutions in the world. We have the most VC. We have the most numbers of Nobel laureates. Like we've got the intellectual capital. We've got the capital capital and we have the farming capital. If we put this all together, we really can carry out this huge responsibility and obligation to future generations of helping to lead on climate change and finding solutions to not only adapt to it, but to mitigate it wherever that's possible. Well, it's really inspiring, and it's great to hear of all the progress that we've described. Beyond this progress, what else needs to happen in U.S. agriculture really to meet our Paris Accord climate commitments and other climate goals? Are we on track, and what needs to change to get there? We have to scale up. We have to scale up considerably. That's why this project with the Commodity Partnerships on Climate Smart Ag is so important. That's going to be data. I think that data is very important, Jason, because as more and more companies who are concerned about sourcing and global sourcing and making sure that the practices are real, 
I don't want us to be caught into a situation where there's greenwashing. I think it's very important that we really standardize this as much as possible because as more companies are reporting their scope three emissions, they're going to be asking the questions all the way to the farm. And I think many of them now recognize they have to be partners with the farmer. We want to keep those offsets within the food supply chain. And we have, we have a number of emissions. We all need to be part of the offsets of this. And so what I would say, what's most needed is we have to scale up and we can't do it in anyone on the farm or in a boardroom. We have to do this together and work collectively on this. Well, Secretary Ross, you've said that we all need to be part of this. And so I'd love to end on something really actionable for everyone, for listeners who want to do more to address climate change, really through the relationship with food and agriculture, what should they do? Well, first is look for California produced foods and goods. That's local. It has multiple benefits. And hopefully that's one way of reducing emissions. Two is think about when we buy. I know I get very ambitious when I go to the farmer's market and then I can't recognize what's in my vegetable drawer two weeks later. (laughs) And food waste is something each one of us can play a role in. And I know the transition, you all have done this for over a decade in in San Francisco, but the rest of the state now is coming into the separation of goods to make sure the right products going into compost bins and all of those things. So we all have a role to play there. And then I just think about how we use energy. Each one of us has a role in the energy that we use and what energy source we choose, as well as transportation and taking full advantage of really reducing our carbon footprint by how we choose to walk or ride a bike or drive or use mass transit in this state. (laughs) (laughs) Secretary Ross, thank you so much for being here today. It was a pleasure. It was great to meet you. And I look forward to doing another conversation to measure our progress. Okay. Looking forward. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.